I've often thought that one of the great advantages that a young person can have is when they know what it is they want to do. Welcome to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Connors. NetworkWise trains and educates individuals and organizations in the science and art of networking to accelerate sales, personal development, and career opportunities. In Conversations with Connors, I talk with a variety of highly successful individuals in order to gain insights on how they built, maintain, and cultivated their relationships in order to live a life by design, not by default. My next guest is a Hollywood actor that's been on the big screen for the past 30 plus years. His most recent success has been playing FBI agent Bill Tench in the smash Netflix series Mindhunter. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's intense. His list of accolades don't start or end there. In fact, he's been tied to a number of other household movies and top TV shows throughout the course of his tenure that are sure to ring a bell. Jack Reacher, Shot Caller, Scully, Golden Boy, Gangster Squad, Blue Bloods, Law and Order, Special Victims, and Criminal Intent, Lights Out, The Loser, CSI, and Fight Club, just to name a few. During the course of this illustrious career, he's worked with some of the best and brightest actors, directors, and writers. The man I reference is Holt McCallany, and today we get the opportunity to learn about his story, what it's like being a Hollywood actor, the difficulties and sacrifices that he's had to make along his journey, mentorship, and the importance of having great people in his corner. We discussed the importance of building a good reputation and how it served him. As Holt puts it, you can't stress the importance of cultivating relationships with people you admire. This is a good conversation where you genuinely get to learn a lot about Holt. Heck, I've known him for 10 years but walked away with a much deeper appreciation for who he is, his craft, and what it took for him to be where he is today. So, Please kick back, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with my friend Holt McCallany as much as I did. Thanks, good to see you, my friend. Yeah, man, this is good stuff, man. I'm glad you made it. Appreciate you coming in. It's a Sunday night. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's late. Are you a morning? You're a morning guy, right? Well, look, you know, when we're shooting the television show, my day often starts at like 4 a.m. or 4.30 I'm in the makeup chair at 5.30, on set, shooting at 7, and then we do long hours. So uh, I'm a morning person because uh, I have to be. I got why so early? It's so funny. I just did my first movie in France, and they have very different labor laws in France. So they can only work a 10-hour day. The car picks you up at the hotel at a very civilized 8.30 a.m., mm -hmm. and by 6.30 at night, you're wrapped and going home. Even an adult? Even an adult, yeah. In Hollywood, it's very common to do 13, 14, 15-hour days on the film set. Sometimes you can do more. It's illegal to do that in France. <laughs> and yet me. they still manage to make, you know, some very good films. So, but no, we do long hours on the set and because we're doing long hours, we have to start early. So was it enjoyable doing a movie in France or because it was not as intense or Well, not for that reason. It was enjoyable. I mean, yeah, it felt a little bit like a vacation when you're used to doing, you know, 14-hour days or you know, 10-hour <laughs> days is, is a lot shorter. But um I went to college in France, and you I speak French. Don't I you? do speak French. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a French language film. Yeah, yeah. So it'll come out this September. It's called Le Dindon, which uh, means the turkey in English, <laughs> and it stars a guy named Danny Boone, who is not well known in the United States, but he is the biggest box office star in France, and I think the highest paid actor in Europe. A very funny guy, very very talented, very nice guy. I'm really excited about the film. Le Dindon is a, a play by a famous French playwright named Georges Feydeau, famous for his farces. You've mm -hmm. heard about the French farce. Uh -huh. So um, this is a really, like, typical, it just epitomizes the genre. And it's a famous piece that was written in 1896. And so this is a modern adaptation set in the 1960s with um, some really funny actors. And uh, I think it's going to be a big hit over there. So how did that happen? How did this movie come to fruition yeah, for you? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I do a series called Mindhunter on Netflix, which is produced and directed by 
David Fincher, who is a, an extraordinary filmmaker and someone that I've had the privilege to work for several times in my career. And Mindhunter is a big hit all over the world, but they really love it in France. And uh, because of the success of the show in France, I was able to sign with a French agent. I had always wanted to work there. I went to college there and uh, I love Paris. It's a really fun, really beautiful city. And finally, so I finally did. Uh, it's like a long held aspiration of mine. And then finally, uh, last year, I got to make my first film. And did you do it in French? It is a French language film. Yeah. Was that yeah. challenging? I mean, how often are you? No, are you know, you I mean, uh, I'm playing an American in Paris. Mm -hmm. Um, and then my, my wife is having an affair with Danny Boone, but, uh, I lived in France for a long time. I maintained a residence there for about 15 years. And, uh, you know, I speak the language fluently. So it was always something that I knew I would jump at if I ever got the opportunity. But it's not easy for American actors to work in European cinema. The agents out in L.A. don't really track it. And the casting directors, you know, in Europe aren't accustomed to offering a lot. You know, it's different maybe for guys that are big stars or guys that are known to, to live in France. You know, John Malkovich had a residence in France for a long time. Johnny Depp lived in Paris. But if you're just, you know, living in L.A. and working in American movies, the chances of you getting offered a French film are very small. Hmm. But now, like I said, you know, I've got a, a really good French agent who uh, is always looking for stuff for me. It won't really make any difference to my career in Hollywood because they don't really care. But for me personally, it was a really rewarding experience. And I, I had wanted to do it for a long time and I finally got to do it. Was it hard? Were you doing this simultaneously while filming? I was, you know, and, and I'm very grateful to David Fincher because, as I said, you know, on Mindhunter, I'm one of the two leads on the show. We do long hours every day. We very frequently do six-day weeks, and we shoot for eight or nine months. You know, it's a, it's a long shoot. It's a long, long thing, and it's it, it can be quite grueling, to be honest. I'm not complaining. You know, I have a great job. And, and Bill Tench, the character that I play on Mindhunter, is a really good part. And uh, I love working for David. He's a very smart guy. But um, they were willing to work it out. You know, the, the French director, a lovely guy who's become a good friend, a guy named Jalil Lesper, who won a César for a film called Yves Saint Laurent and has had a long career in France. And I did a Skype call with him and... Uh, and I had a bad connection and I felt like he couldn't hear me and the signal kept dropping. And I thought he's never going to offer me this part. But then he, he offered me the part. You got it offered through Skype. That's quite common anymore, you know, because actors and directors yeah. are often in different parts of the world working on different projects yeah. and with technology, modern technology being what it is. Yeah, that's wow. how you have a lot of meetings. These days. Well, next one I recommend, try Zoom Info. Is. Sure. So did it hold you back at all from other things like eight, nine months filming uh, Mindhunter while doing? Yeah, no, that's a first of all, they worked very hard to find a hole in the schedule that would permit me to go to France. They had no contractual obligation to do that. So that's just out of the goodness of their hearts because they knew it was something important to me. But for me to think about the experience of working with David on Mindhunter, it's not like it's preventing me from doing other jobs. I'm really fortunate to have that job. And I like working on the show. The other lead on the show is a guy named Jonathan Groff, a superbly talented actor who was one of the stars of Hamilton. He was nominated for a Tony. He's been nominated for two Tonys. And uh, really, really hardworking, very, very talented and very professional guy that so we have great scripts we have a great director we have a fascinating subject matter you know it's all about the psychology of serial killers and we study the real cases and it's, it's based just, off a book right it's based on a very very well-known book called mind hunter by john douglas john douglas was uh an fbi agent for many years and together with a, a guy named robert wrestler they conducted these extensive interviews with 36 incarcerated serial killers to try to figure out the psychological underpinnings of sexually motivated homicide. And it's just an endlessly fascinating question. Why do these guys commit these heinous crimes, you know? Yeah. Did you have to interview any of these people before? You know, I uh, interviewed any who? of the murders. 
Look, you know, I've been trying. I mean, I wrote a letter to uh, Ed Kemper. I drove up to try to interview uh, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. Yeah. He wouldn't come out of his cell. Did you go all the way there? I did, yeah. I did, yeah. The Shawangump Correctional Facility is called. It's in upstate New York. It's like a three-hour drive. I went twice because the first day I got there just after visiting hours were were finishing, so I had to go back and then drive up the following day. Got through, you know, checking all my stuff, and they make you put everything in a locker, and you go through the metal detector, and I'm sitting in the little waiting room, and the officer comes out and says, I'm sorry, Mr. Berkowitz is refusing the visit. And And is this already set up? I knew a young man who was wrongfully convicted of a crime that he did not commit, a gentleman named uh, John Juca whose conviction was recently vacated and who should be released very soon, we believe. But he was serving in the same facility as Berkowitz. And I had written to John and and asked him to mention to Mr. Berkowitz that I would like to visit him. And um, it seemed like he would talk to me. You know, the message that I got back was that he would be willing to talk to me. And he gets a lot of visitors because um, he's a born-again Christian, is sort of very active in the local church community up there. So it's not like he doesn't take visitors. He gets visitors frequently. But I think in my case, because I was on the television show, that he felt that what I would likely do is grill him about the details of the murders. Mm. And those murders were in the 1970s, you know, many, many years ago. And he's been very vocal in interviews that he has done about the fact that he doesn't want to talk about those crimes anymore. Mm. He no longer considers himself the son of Sam. Now he is the son of hope. And um, those crimes are in the past. But it wasn't really my intention to grill him about the murders. The volumes have been written about those murders. You know, you can study them on the internet. I wanted to just kind of sit with the guy and get a sense of the guy. Because one of the really fascinating questions that always comes up when you talk to guys in law enforcement is the subject of rehabilitation. Can a convicted serial Mm -hmm. murderer Mm -hmm. be rehabilitated and re-enter society? Is that possible or not? Exactly. And, you know, if you talk to guys in law enforcement, they're usually pretty skeptical. They're going to say, you know, no. they're going to say no. 95% recidivism they, rate. They would say, well, the, the analogy that I've heard them use is, uh-huh. let's say you were going to bake a cake, right? Mm-hmm. And you get the butter and the flour and the eggs and the sugar and all the ingredients that you would use to make the cake. But just before you put the cake in the oven, a little bit of motor oil spills into the batter. Now, when you get that cake out of the oven, is it possible to remove that motor oil? That's what they will say. But I really believed from everything that I had read that David Berkowitz might be an example. Hmm. It's been 40 years plus since he committed those crimes, right? That his conversion to Christianity From what I've read, it seems genuine. I mean, a lot of guys do find Jesus, you know what I mean, when they're serving life sentences. But um, I was had a hunch that maybe Berkowitz is the kind of guy that would strike me if I got to meet him and look in his eyes and talk to him. That maybe I would have the feeling, no, this is a guy who feels like he's rehabilitated. But I didn't get the opportunity. But, you know... uh, there's a very interesting guy named Bobby Beausoleil, who was in the Manson family, who was up for parole soon, and uh, he's in prison in California. And I had written to him, and I think I had a chance potentially to meet with him. So, you know, it was so interesting. I, um, so, I've known you, mm-hmm. but I never uh, looked you up. So before, uh, 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 yeah. So it's really interesting. You've done a lot of stuff, man. I, I started. I a long time. Yeah. So you've been doing this for a long time. Yeah, TV, movies. You've done a lot of stuff. I mean, you've been, you've been at this for. Yeah. Have you ever? Do you ever look yourself up? You know, um, I mean, I wonder how accurate. And then that's a whole other thing too. I don't know who who's responsible for like IMDb or Wikipedia. You know, source, let me just so. say, let me just say yeah. how what the hopeless idiots who run IMDb. And I hope that one of you will see this interview. This bio, you know, that's just part I, of it. Yeah, I submitted through my publicist. Uh-huh a new bio because I've done other projects since this one was written like five or six weeks ago. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so she has up, so since called them. You, it's up to you. We, we provide them you with, okay. with the updated biography. Yeah, because you, you know, want them to do that because. And they just won't. I mean, how long does it take just to 
Put the new biography. It's like so she's called six times. You just, the movie you just talked about. It's not, not on here. the bio. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not. I really don't understand the people at IMDb. I really don't. I mean, you're so, so incompetent. You know what I mean? It's like you hate actors. What is the matter with you, you morons who run IMDb? You know, why wouldn't they do this? You're feeding it to them. I. I can't answer that okay. question because right. there isn't an answer that makes any sense. Okay, so yeah, let's. Hope, if someone knows anybody that is connected to IMDb, I'd love to hear from them. I'd love to find out <laughs> what it, you know, why or what we can do to move that along. Um, you're the not the only person that's told me that. So, right. but anyways, my point was, yeah. all right, fine. So they're they're behind. Yeah, but he's done some stuff, man. So and was reading about. That's just so interesting, too. Again, I don't know how accurate, but, uh, you know, you started out and getting in some trouble when you were young. Is that true? Yeah. You know, I had a troubled youth. I was a juvenile delinquent. When I was 14 years old, I ran away from home, and I took a Greyhound bus to Los Angeles to try to become a movie actor. And So you knew? Um, I knew when I was six years old that I wanted to be an actor, and I've often thought that one of the great advantages that a young person can have is when they know what it is they want to do. Because very often young people are kind of searching for what they want to do and they kick around, they try this, they try that. Mm -hmm. And if you have that certainty of knowing, mm -hmm. it's almost like a calling, yeah. right? There's a wonderful play by the late great playwright Lanford Wilson called Angels Fall. And in that play, there's a scene about a young kid who's a tennis player. And it's about the moment that he discovers that he wants to be a tennis player. And he's never seen a tennis match, but one day he stumbles upon a court, <laughs> yeah. and there are these two guys playing tennis, and he's watching them, and he's fascinated by it. And when they take a break, they walk off the court, and they happen to leave their rackets behind, and he picks up one of the rackets, and he's holding it in his hand, and he throws the ball in the air, and he hits the ball, and it's almost like in that moment, he knows. It's like, wow, this is me. This is what I want to do. I want to be a tennis player. And if you're lucky, you have that moment at some point in your youth, do you know what I mean, where it just comes to you like, this is what I want to do. So I was very young when I knew I wanted to be an actor. And part of the problem that I had was that both of my parents were actors, first of all. They were yeah. Broadway actors. And my mother was also a, a very well-known singer in New York. And yeah. my father became a producer and won a Tony Award on Broadway. So I knew they could get me an agent. I could be a child actor. And that was my aspiration. And I kept constantly berating them. Why can't I do Because I would see movies. <laughs> yeah. I would watch television shows. And there were kids my age. Mm -hmm. And I would say, well, why can't I audition for that part? Why can't I? Yeah. You know, and they wanted me to have a normal childhood. Well, I don't know to what degree a normal childhood was ever going to be possible in my family. But as soon as I could, you know, I got expelled from school. And what um, age? What I age? did at fourteen, <laughs> and um, I was in a poker game. And <laughs> fourteen, like, yeah, yeah, I was right. in a poker game that was kind of like one of those sort of like, you know, dollar two dollar games. Yeah. And it was at the house of a young guy that I knew, and his father was a dentist who came home drunk, and found his son and his son's friends playing poker, and he found that very. I'll show you kids how to play poker. Deal me in, right? But he was loaded, and he played horribly. And he kept wanting to raise the stakes, raise the stakes, play. And by the end of the evening, I had won $2,000. You have to understand that $2,000 for a 14-year-old boy in 1977 would literally be what $200,000 is like to me now. Do you know what I mean? It seemed like this enormous amount of money. Yeah. And, you know, I was in trouble at home. I had been uh, expelled really from two high schools. <laughs> and suddenly it just became clear to me yeah. that what I was going to do was I was going to go to Hollywood. And so me and a, a buddy of mine, we ran away and we went out to LA and uh, we got jobs in a screwdriver factory in Gardena, California, unloading trucks. 
At 14. 14, because, you know, we got fake IDs, just and I was tall, idea. and, you know, and, and it was a different time in yeah, the 70s. Yeah. You know, we <clears> pretended <throat> we were 18, and they hired us. We were stock boys. You know what I mean? We work yeah. at, we unload the trucks, and we stock the merchandise in the yeah. warehouse. No right? cards at that time to prove your, uh, you know, working card, remember? You didn't working have that? Card? I forgot no. what it was called. You used to have a, we had a certain age with the file to get no, it. No, you just no. had to show an identification. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and when you filled out your application, and they barely glanced at it, yeah. you know? And um, it was a screwdriver factory, but they didn't only make screwdrivers. They also made things like flashlights and, you know, uh, Swiss Army knives and sets of steak knives. There were a lot of different kinds of merchandise. And when you're a runaway, you're also, by definition, a thief, right? Why? Why? Well, because, you know, you're living on your own. You don't have your parents. You don't have any support. You know what I mean? We're in this one-room apartment that we're in Torrance that we're sharing, you know, yeah. and we're trying to live paycheck to paycheck, making very little money. So we would steal stuff. Yeah. And every night I would leave, you know, I'm a skinny kid, you know, in a like a army jacket, and I would leave the warehouse like 30 pounds heavier than when I when I arrived that morning. And then the stuff that we stole, we would either sell it or trade it for whatever. I remember one day I'd been there a few months and uh, the foreman came back into the stockroom and he told us that the owner wanted to speak to us in the front office. And I thought, "Oh man, we must be caught." But, you know, the 70s is not like now. Cameras were not ubiquitous yeah. in the way that they have become. And we felt like we had cased the place pretty well. Mm -hmm. So I decided to brazen it out. And uh, we walk through the factory and we get into the owner's office and my dad is standing there. And they had tracked us down because my buddy told this girl that he was in love with back home. You know what I mean? You know, we're working in a screwdriver factory in California and just yeah. they, they figured out where we were and they found us. So I got sent to Ireland. My father was Irish. So I got sent back to Ireland to a boarding school that my dad had attended 40 years earlier, a place called Newbridge College in County Kildare. That was a nightmare. I mean, I love Ireland, but, you know, boarding, boarding school, school with Dominican priests in the 1970s. Uh -huh. You know, I mean, it's uh -huh. like... Yeah, you went yeah. from freedom to... To, to, complete, <laughs> the, to complete lack of freedom, oh you know, and... Uh, uh, that for a dichotomy? Right. Oh, no, culture shock, man. What'd you get from it, though? What was the positive? I, I would came? say, you know, my first day, I go, I arrive at the uh, the boarding school. They cut, You know, it was the 70s, so I have long hair like mm. the Bee Gees or something, well, like Leaf Garrett, you know? <laughs> and uh, they cut all my hair off, and they, they put me in the school uniform, which is the college blazer with the college tie and the college crest on the blazer. I just can't and, picture you. Oh, God, no. And I was like, and I didn't want to be there. You know, uh, my dad had brought me to the school. They sent me, by that time, it was like that took most of the morning on my first day. Yeah. So by the time we had gotten through this whole processing part of my journey, it was time for lunch. So they sent me to the refectory, what we would call the cafeteria. Uh -huh. It's like 400 boys talking. It's the only time of the day that you're allowed to talk because in an Irish boarding school in those days, you know, it's run by the priests. And when the priest enters the room, the boys stand up next to their chairs and you can't sit down until the priest sits down. And once he sits down, there is no talking of any kind. It's you just can't like say, let me your pencil. You know, it's like nothing. And when they ask you a question, you're supposed to say, yes, father, no, father, or I'm sorry, I don't know, father. It's like that. But I was a wise ass. You know, I was a runaway. I wasn't really from there, and I didn't really understand. And so it's my first day, and I'm in line, and I've got my metal tray, and they slop this kind of like stringy-looking meat onto my tray and you know how if you take beef and you leave it out in the sun it'll get this rainbow colored sheen yeah, on the top yeah. of it and i'm looking at this slop on my tray and i'm thinking oh my god is this what i have to look forward to you know for the rest of my yeah. year and i turn and there happens to be a priest standing right there like that and i said to him i know this isn't what you guys eat in the rectory well true enough they do have a separate kitchen for the priests, and it's a very different menu. But you're not supposed to mention that. And the guy that I stumbled across was a very tough uh, Dublin priest from the north side. And he hit me, right, with an open hand, but very hard. And I flew, and my tray goes clattering, and 400 boys talking, and suddenly there's silence, right? And he says, now you'll clean that up, and you'll go to your cubicle, and you'll learn to keep a civil tongue in your head. And I was like, just about, because I was, you know, a precocious kid, and I had a lot of anger. 
And I was going to go for him. I really was. And I saw these other boys going, <sighs> I picked up my tray and I dropped it. And I walked out and I went back to my cubicle. And that was my first day in Ireland. And I got in a lot of fights there. I got all my teeth knocked out. But if you say, what did I take from it? I took away a lot because the Irish, I mean, I'm half Irish. My father was from Dublin, which is how I ended up there. But they taught me uh, to be respectful, not to be a wise ass. You're it, still it, a wise ass. Well, maybe yeah, I am, but not like I used to be. And, and I, they instilled some good Irish discipline <laughs> into me, which I think was what I needed at that time in my life. And uh, it was a difficult period because I was the only American in the school. And so whenever you're as a child, you know, when you're the odd man out, you're always going to be treated differently. Although I really disliked the experience while I was going through it. When I look back at my experience at Newbridge College many, many years later, I realize that it, it did me some good. About 30 years, 25 years later, I'm an actor in Hollywood and I get a, a part on a terrible television show called Heroes, <laughs> right? Right before it got canceled. And I was supposed to play an Irish gangster from Cork. And I said, well, you know what? This will be an, an opportunity for me to go back to, I had relatives that were from Cork. As a matter of fact, my great grandfather was station master in Cork station a hundred years ago. And Cork was Ireland's second city. And that would have been considered, that was like post-famine Ireland. That would have been considered a very important position. Mm -hmm. They called him handsome Rafe, right? And so I said, I'm going to go to Cork and I'm going to work on this accent. Well, what I didn't know was that the Cork dialect, it's like this high pitched sing song. You think, oh yeah, here boy. You know, it's like, unintelligible. Even <laughs> other Irish people can't understand a really thick Cork accent. And I'm in these like rough bars, you know what I mean? Like the pubs <sighs> by the waterfront, you know, interviewing guys that have these accents. And at first they're looking at me like, who is this guy? You know, but then they decided, I guess, that I was a novelty and I was buying drinks. And so I went to see the, um, the dialect coach at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin, she said, you cannot do a Cork accent on American television. The only thing is you can do is that sort of soft rural Irish accent that Gabriel Byrne has or someone like that. Uh -huh. Because anything thicker than that, the American audience just won't follow you. Yeah. But in the meantime, Cork is sort of like if you're driving from Dublin to Cork, you pass through Newbridge where Newbridge College was. Did you stop in? I did, and I went looking for Father Conway, <laughs> yeah. the guy that smacked yeah. me, right, yeah. like 25 years earlier. And, you know... Disdain um, for Father? Respect well, no, what for I, Father? I was gonna, I was, no, what I was going to do was I was going to... I was just going to scare him a little bit. I wasn't going to actually, like, smack... Yeah. You know what I mean? I was just going to, like... Do you remember me, Father? My name is Holt. You couldn't have had too many young lads come through here named Holt. <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing that you remember me, yeah. don't you? Shall I refresh your memory? Right? And I, I wasn't just to scare him, not yeah. to put my hands on him, yeah. but just so he had that one little moment, you know what I mean? Oh, of yeah. like not being sure what's about to happen right now, <laughs> you know? But I couldn't find him. So, uh, uh, yeah, it was very disappointing. He would have been an old guy by yeah, then anyway. Yeah. It would have been absolutely absurd for me, <laughs> you know what I mean, to actually hit him. But it would have been fun to find him anyway. Did you see anyone else or recognize anyone else? Or they you still know, there? Uh, there, were, there were one or two teachers that were still there after all that time. But, you know, the place seemed very small. It's funny, this place that seemed like a prison. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. When I was a child yeah. and I walked back there as an adult and it just seemed like a a little school on the banks of the River Liffey, almost like something you would see in a painting. It had none of the sort of um, ominous feeling that I remembered from my youth. Wow. So you go through that experience. How did you get into acting? How did that come you know, from? I mean, look, you know, uh, both my parents were actors. You know, my mother did a film, a very good film, which you can still see, called This Could Be the Night which was directed by the great Robert Wise, starred an actor I always liked named Tony Franciosa. And uh, one of the stars of the film was a woman named Neil Adams. And Neil Adams, while she was making the film with my mom, um, met and married Steve McQueen. Hmm. So occasionally, Neil would come to visit Julie after I was born and we lived in New Jersey, and Steve would be there. I just thought Steve McQueen 
was like the coolest guy in the universe, mm-hmm. you know? I don't know. It's just, I mean, from the age of six. So you carried this torch for acting even while you were in... Well, that's what I, you know, when I was six years old, I would like dance around the house. Remember that song from the Disney movie? Hi, diddle dee dee, an actor's life for me. Mm-hmm. Hi, diddle dee doo, mm-hmm. we sleep till after two. Uh-huh. You know, when your parents are actors, it makes things quite a bit easier. It doesn't guarantee you any success in the business because at the end of the day nobody's gonna no director is gonna hire you unless he Dude, you you work so hard i mean when we went to aruba that time we were all out on the beach hanging out and you kept going up to this is uh i forgot what script this is right after lights out do you remember you know what i'm talking about like because we were out hanging out we're like where's holt and you'd come back you're like and you're reading scripts yeah i mean well, i know you, that you're, you're, you're always you're, disciplined well thanks you know it takes a lot of work and um the problem with being an actor is, you know, as soon as one project ends, you're unemployed again mm-hmm. and you have to find your next gig. So how do you find these gigs? What is it that well, you, you, know, do? You, you know, there's no way to do it without having good representation. Yeah. You know? Well, how much of it is representation versus your reputation versus your relationships? You know, yeah, well, you know, it, it all plays a part. It all matters. It's really, I think it's important to have a good reputation yeah. and for people to believe that you're uh, conscientious and hardworking and, and talented. And it's also really, really important to have good representatives, people who believe in you and an agent or and a manager who are going to spend a portion of their day every day getting on the phone and talking about Holt. Yeah. And then as time goes on, you do meet people, you form relationships. You know, I was in David Fincher's first movie, Alien 3, which we shot in 1991. And now I'm starring in a television show for him in 2019. And in the meantime, I did Fight Club with him back in 98, right? Fight Club, yeah. So you want to try to cultivate relationships with people that you admire and people that you want to work with, because hopefully then you'll get to work with them on more than one occasion. Yeah. Do you do a lot of things? Is there burnout because you're spending so much time with other actors and actresses where you're like, hey, I just need a breather away? From actors, like I know, like on Wall Street and stuff, a lot of times, you know, guys, they just, the last thing they want to do is spend any time with someone, you know, that they work with and deal with because they want to talk about other things. Do yeah, you experience you know, that you know, too? I, or? I, I, you know, occasionally. I mean, I have so many good friends that are actors. I've been in the business for such a long time. You know, it's like that old Eagle song, Hotel California. Mm-hmm. You know, you can check out anytime, but you can never leave. <laughs> yeah. But it's true that Hollywood can get to be a little dispiriting occasionally just because it really is a one-horse town. Everybody's there for the entertainment business. Mm. New York is much more diverse. Yeah, you have Broadway, which is wonderful and exciting, and but there's also Wall Street. There's also the fashion business. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, there's, yeah. there's, it's more of a cultural melting pot. You know, there's kind of like more diversity, really. If you're living in Beverly Hills and West Hollywood and, you know, most of the people that you're going to interact with are there because they want to be in the entertainment business in some capacity. Yeah. Do you have to worry about any of the relationships, people just being your friend because of who you are? Um, I was never a big star. Adam, but you're, the you're, guys that are just list over here, you know, well, you know, look, are you being look, humble think, or you're no, just saying, I mean, I'm just, I mean, I'm being honest. I, I think for the guys that are really major stars or very successful directors, big producers, studio executives, they do need to be reserved and careful about the degree to which they let people get close to them for the simple reason that unfortunately those guys live in a world where everybody they meet wants something from them yeah they either have a script will you please meet my script (laughs) or you know uh, my daughter is trying to get an agent is there any way you could help and make a call for me whatever it is you know what i mean everything you could possibly imagine they see it all the time and the truth is that as jack lemon famously said, the great old character actor, not not deceased. He said, if you're successful in a particular business, you have an obligation 
to send the elevator back down. I love that. That's his saying? That's I his that's, saying. Okay, I, I quote know. that all the time. Oh, do you really? Yeah, I didn't realize it was his saying. That was his saying. Yeah. And I've always liked that because the yeah, truth of the matter that. is that people, my, people helped you yeah. when you were young. They helped yeah. me. And so I don't mind helping people, but you can't help everybody. And I think that for some of the guys that are really big stars, really... They just kind of get inundated. Mm. People want them to make personal appearances. You can't be everywhere and you have to be, you know, your private life, your personal life, your family life. You do have to be protective of that. You know, it's crazy. I was listening to Joe Rogan podcast actually today and he's interviewing Kevin Hart. And Kevin Hart, what a great sport he is, by the way, at least hearing some of these stories. But he talked about how uh, most recently he was in the going to the bathroom. And a guy went and like waiting on him to like just to get in. And he's saying that nowadays it's not even an autograph, it's a picture. Right. So the violation of privacy. Uh, I did a movie uh, back in the 90s with George Clooney called Three Kings. Very good movie that was directed by David O. Russell, a very gifted filmmaker. I just have this recollection of being uh, like in this restaurant slash bar, not a very salubrious place, but we're in Arizona. And we're, uh, it's after we've, after the day shooting and we were just kind of having a beer, you know, and George was kind of telling stories and stuff and people were coming up and asking him for his autograph and one would come and get the autograph and go away. And then another one would come and it was almost like a steady stream. It was like a parade. And I started to look around the room and I realized that they were kind of waiting and watching to see when one left so that they could shoot in there and be the next one. After about 30 minutes of this, I turned to George and I said, wow, this must get to be exhausting, doesn't it? And he said, you know, Holt, the only thing that you can do is be gracious and sign the autograph and say, oh, sure, my pleasure. There you go. Thanks. Because the minute that you start getting into a conversation with someone where you say, hey, I didn't come here to sign autographs. I just came here to have a drink with my friends. Then they're going to say, oh, but I've been your fan since you did your very first series. I followed your career for 20 years. Please. And suddenly you're into a longer conversation, right, <laughs> than you would have been in yeah. if you just would have signed the thing and said, okay, you know. And then the yeah. other part of it is you have to remember that people out there will meet you and they'll have one interaction with you. And that'll be you. For the rest of their lives, every time your name comes up, they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, I met him in Arizona. He was really nice. You know, he took a picture with me and signed an autograph for me. I liked him very much. Or what an asshole that guy mm. was. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, so you have to remember that these are your fans. Yeah. And if you didn't want to, then stay home mm. or be in another business. Do you yeah. know, this is part of it. God, but how do you deal with that? So I don't know if you know who, do you know who Karen Duffy is? She used to be the MTV VJ. Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah, so she used to actually date George. And, okay. And, and you'd recognize her if you saw her. So she was on the show and, and we were talking and she was giving story, telling us stories about how, you know, just the violation of, of his privacy and her privacy and, and what, what she's dealing with. I'm like, how do you, is that not get old? Like, how do you, you know... Uh, you know, Mel Gibson famously said, I can't stand in a hotel lobby because if I'm standing in a hotel lobby, that will become an autograph signing session. You, yeah. you have to, the guys that are really famous have to make very calculated decisions about when and where they put themselves out there. So now are you at a point where, I mean, you've got some pretty darn good credibility. Yeah, the answer is no. <laughs> am, I, am, I, am I at the point where I can't stand in a hotel no. lobby? No. <laughs> no, I mean, well, from you're probably getting a lot of work now thrown, right? you got a decent amount of scripts and well, stuff. Do, how, do you, yeah. how much goes into the decision? I'm sorry yeah, to pepper that's you. All right. No, that's okay. You know, look, most of your scripts are going to come through your agents. You make a decision about what you want to do based upon the script itself, first and foremost. Is it on the page? Do you like the script? Is it a role that you want to play? And then the next thing, of course, is who's involved, mm -hmm. who's directing, who will you get to work with? And um, for me, considerations like, you know, where will I have to go to shoot and, oh, yeah, you know, and stuff like this are, are lower on. It's really more about, um, it's more about the part and the story. Is it a story that interests me? And is it uh, the people that are involved in the creative capacities, people that I admire? 
But, you know, many actors, when they get to a certain level of success, will also start their own production companies and be actively optioning books. Mm -hmm. Many actors are also very good writers or commissioning scripts, searching for material and moving into producing as well. Mm. What sacrifices have you had to make to be where you are today? You know, look, um, you know, I never, I never married and I never had a family. And there are actors who, who will say, well, you know, you could have done that. And perhaps I could have, but I knew a lot of actors who had three kids and uh, a big house out in Woodland Hills or someplace with a mortgage, and they've got the kids in private school, and then their TV show gets canceled, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, their agent leaves the business, or, you know, they start to get a little older, or something happens, and the phone stops ringing, and then something next to panic sets in, because people are relying on you. I always said to myself, when I'm successful, when I'm established, then... I want to have a family, but I don't want to start a family till I'm successful because the demands of the business are so intense and you're constantly on the road and you're fighting to go from project to project to project and try to make enough of a living that you can keep your bills paid, you know what I mean? And pay 10% to the agent, 10% to the manager, 5% to the lawyer, 5% to the business manager and the publicist and all of your, you know, uh, other expenses. And then the difficulty is a success in show business can take 25 or 30 years. So, you know, I mean, Mindhunter is a big hit. Yeah. So I'm really lucky. Are you and lucky? Fortunate, I mean, maybe. Is, uh... I, I, what I would say to you, Adam, is it's true that when success comes a little later in life, it's sweeter because mm -hmm. you feel like you've earned it. You deserve it. You waited for it. You struggled for it. And you're more likely to hold on to it. Mm. You know, a lot of young actors who have um, success, for example, when they're in their 20s and they've just gotten into the business and they get on a hit TV show and stuff, those are the guys that very often don't last yeah. because it came too easily. Do you know what I mean? And so they don't respect it in the way that they do and they, they squander their opportunities. Or, I did work hard to be where I am. And yet, you know, look, I'm, it's not like I'm a household name. Mine I'm still working, pretty, yeah. working my way. Well, Mindhunter, you know, David Fincher, I, I have a lot of gratitude to David. He gave me an amazing opportunity. You know, I've tried to make the most of it. People really love the show. Our new season will launch, I believe in June. I don't know if it's been officially announced, so I don't want to get myself in trouble, <laughs> right, but, um, but it's going to be a great season two. And I'm looking forward to seasons three, four, and five. In the meantime, you know, I'll continue to do film work. As I mentioned, I have a film coming out in September. Yeah. Do you prefer movies over television? Are there any genres in particular? You know, you know, we're experiencing something right now called the golden age of television, mm -hmm. uh, where there are these streaming services like Netflix and Amazon. Yeah. So I remember, I don't know if it was 11, 2011 or 12, where we were coming back from dinner with Corrado, mm -hmm. from, at Corrado's house. Mm -hmm. But uh, you telling me, keep an eye on streaming because you were talking about what you were going to be focusing on. I don't know mm -hmm. if you remember that conversation. I don't. Yeah, but, but I remember that I, I had reached out to another friend of mine who's in the industry, and I said, hey, what do you know about this streaming mm -hmm. you know, stuff? And that's when they started talking about Netflix. And, and yeah, So well, you were ahead of the curve on, oh, on that. Did you, you know, know, did you know that, or that was just something that, like, at the no, time? No, I wasn't really ahead of the curve. I think my friend David Fincher was ahead of the gotcha, curve. You okay. know, I mean, he was an executive producer on House of Cards which is kind of the first big oh, show that yeah. really put Netflix on the map. And so I'm sorry, I cut you off. You were, no. you were, you were talking about, when I asked you if you had a preference in terms of TV or... It's where the good parts are. It's about the writing more than anything else. You know, like right now, I'm with an extraordinary director, a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He's not yep. a TV guy. He's yep. a film guy. But I'm doing a TV show, a long-form show, with very high production values. Yeah, because each episode is like its own movie. How long is each episode? Yeah, well, they vary. You know, that's the nice thing about not having to fit into the standard network oh, television minutes. structure of having, you know, 48 minutes of film and 12 minutes of commercials, you know, with the act breaks every, you know. We don't have to do that. If one episode is 49 minutes long and the next one is 53 minutes long, the story can break where the narrative suggests that it should break and not because it has to conform to a pre-existing structure yeah. um, because it's a subscription service. It's not advertising based. Yeah. 
But do, so to you, you're agnostic then, I guess, right? Well, you, know? you know, it's look, you know, it's a very different proposition. You know, when you do a film, it rarely takes more than like three months or so. Sometimes they can go longer, mm. but uh, generally not. And there's always this sort of light at the end of the tunnel. Most Hollywood scripts are written in classic three-act structure. So it's a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Whereas television is an open-ended story Mm -hmm. that takes a life of its own to where very often not even the writers can tell you where the characters will be next season or beyond, or maybe even a few episodes away. You know, Interesting. Yeah. I remember taking a... um, a seminar with a famous guy named Robert McKee, who's kind of a screenwriting guru that a lot of the Hollywood scriptwriters have uh, have gone to to uh, to learn from. A brilliant guy. Our first day in his seminar, he said, "Tony Soprano is a more complicated character than Hamlet." And we all looked at each other like, "Why is Tony Soprano a more complicated character than Hamlet?" He said, "We had nine seasons of Tony Soprano. We got to see him so many, or seven seasons, whatever it was, so many different situations. You know, with his family, with the other mobsters, you know, with law enforcement. There isn't enough real estate in a two-hour movie or a three-hour play to examine a character in that much detail. You just can't do it. So this is what is so exciting about television when it's done really well. Never before in human history has a medium existed where you can really continue to play a character and uh, discover more and more and more about him as the story unfolds. Wow, that's interesting. Are there any genres in particular that you prefer? More than others? Drama. Yeah. I mean, uh, I did a comedy last year. I had a lot of fun doing that, but mostly in drama. Yeah. You know, I've done some action movies. Yeah. Comedy's fun. But I, yeah, hear, I, know, I, I understand that's the most difficult. I guess it depends on, like, what you're drawn to. Yeah. When I was very, very young, I my godmother, actually, was a producer at someplace called the Second City Theater in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I spent a couple of summers there in my youth studying improvisational comedy. And this that's where improv came from, isn't Chicago? Or, that's right. Yeah. Okay. And it was really exciting. But anatomy is destiny in Hollywood. <laughs> okay. And yeah, uh, yeah. and I was always some um, somebody that they wanted to, you know. I played a lot of soldiers, and I played a lot of cops and bad guys and stuff like that. And uh, you're always looking for those parts that speak to you in some way. Orson Welles famously said that in each of us there is a poet and a priest an assassin, and a revolutionary. You remove the things about yourself that don't correspond to the character. What you'll be left with is the character. So you're reading a script, and you're hoping to see something in that character that reminds me of something that I know. Yeah, Do you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? So you, that I possess. Because I'll use that yeah. as my sort of like doorway into this person. So it's a very personal journey. And some guys are going to be more drawn to comedic material and other guys to dramatic material. But then you also want to challenge yourself and you don't want to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you want to kind of um, try new things and new, new genres. Did you have a mentor? Did I have a mentor? Wow. What a great question. I had an acting teacher, a guy who's now deceased. Um, his Sorry. name was Harold Guskin. That's all right. He's a brilliant guy and uh, was, a, for a time, the head of the classical acting workshop at the Public Theater under Joe Pop, and uh, wrote a good book called How to Stop Acting. I studied with Harold for a long time. I had people that I looked up to, yeah. other actors that I admired, directors like David that I really wanted to work for. So, so there are people that you ping ideas off of all the time, or there? I, I do have guys that work with my company, yeah. writers that are very smart guys, who uh, I'm constantly sending material to, and what do you think of this, and you know, trying to decide what we're going to try to... Because you know, in a business that constantly needs content, why not do something more than just be an actor waiting for a phone call from his agent. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Why not be more entrepreneurial and get out there and try to also initiate projects that have stories that um, resonate with you? Yeah. Is there anyone that you've taken under your wing? You know, I get a lot of young actors reaching out to me, looking for advice, Adam, or or help. And I, 
I always try to make the time for it if I can. For the reason that we discussed earlier, you know, the famous Jack yeah, Lemmon. Yeah, make it to the top. You know, you know well, no, it's just, yeah. you know, people were good to me when I was young. They went out of their way. And because of that, I was put in a position where I could ultimately have success. So, so I try to give advice. Mm -hmm. I try to... What is some of the advice? Give me some advice that you give people. Are, are there some generic advice that you can give people? Like, you no, know, I remember like yeah. my, you know, I mentioned uh, a moment ago, the acting teacher that I worked with for a long time, this guy, Harold Guskin. And I remember my very first day working with Harold, he said, I'm going to tell you two things today. And if you can remember these two things then that's enough of a lesson for your first day. <laughs> and here they are. Number one, talent will win in the end. It may take time, but you have to believe that. An actor has to be an optimist. An actor cannot worry about the odds against him. You know, the Screen Actors Guild is a union that has 95% unemployment among its members at any given time. So if you sit around and dwell on the odds against you, that will undermine you. You have to be confident and you have to be an optimist and believe that your talent will eventually get you an opportunity, even if you have to wait for it for a long time. And then the second thing okay, that yeah, he said like to me was, um, don't worry about being in with the in crowd. Just the fact that you do what you do, if you do it well, that puts you in, right? Mm. You know, showing up at premieres or at Hollywood parties is okay, but that isn't generally where you get jobs. Mm. Where you get jobs is in the daytime, going into rooms and auditioning for directors and producers and casting directors and having done your homework and being well-prepared mm. And that's how you get offers. What would he say to the quote that hustle beats talent when talent doesn't hustle? You, uh, this business that I chose is a very competitive business. Hollywood, especially from people, the movie business, it can seem very glamorous. And when people have success, the rewards can be tremendous. You travel all over the world. You get to do films in different places with interesting people. And you're, you know... So a lot of people want to be in it, but the truth is that you have to worry about the work, about improving. You have to continue to grow. You have to be a little better this year than you were last year. And if you continue to grow and you continue to improve, then you will continue to have a chance to be successful. But, um, Focusing on anything other than the work. So, yeah, you got to hustle. And also, you know, I believe that actors are born, they're not made. What does that mean? That means that if you don't have a certain amount of natural ability, mm -hmm. if you don't have a bit of intrinsic talent for this particular profession, it's very hard, yeah. you know, to take somebody who's just not a born actor and coach them into being a successful actor, I don't think it can really be done. What do you think makes somebody a good actor? You know, a facility with language. Socrates famously said, know thyself, mm -hmm. two simple words, but they could scarcely be more profound. And for an actor, it's particularly important because, you know, as I mentioned, the Orson Welles quote, yeah. you're going to have to access different parts of yourself and you're going to have to be able to use that when you create different characters from different walks of life. So the more that you can access those things, the more that you know yourself and know what you have to invest in a character, then the stronger the choices are that you can make. How does like someone like a, uh, oh my God, what's his name? Tom, uh, he did Forrest Hanks? Gump. Yeah, like how yeah. the heck does a guy like that do so many different... I, I worked with Tom recently on a movie called uh, Sully with um, for Clint Eastwood about um, Captain Sullenberger, <laughs> you know, uh, the miracle on the Hudson, yeah, yeah, the guy yeah. that landed the plane. I just had dinner with a guy who was with the one of the guys that survived that. Well, you know, um, Tom Hanks and I both started our careers at exactly the same place. My first job as an actor was also Tom's first job as an actor. We were apprentice actors, unpaid intern <laughs> actors at the Great Lake Shakespeare Festival in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh. And when I met Tom, I mentioned that to him and he couldn't believe it, you know, like what a small world. But because of Tom's personality, he's remained in contact, remained friendly with a lot of those guys that worked at Great Lakes. You know, Tom was there in the 70s. I was there in the 80s. And I, I've remained friends with him, too. 
We're the only two guys that came out of that program that ever really went to Los Angeles and worked in the film business. But some of them are very good actors, but they work in, the, in regional theater. When I mentioned that to Tom and mentioned that I knew some of these people in common, we kind of bonded like almost immediately. Uh, we had a very warm kind of a rapport. We spent a lot of time talking on the set. I really liked Tom Hanks and uh, came away from that experience with uh, a lot of respect for him. And he is a superb actor and has had an extraordinary career. Yes. What, what do you think Tom or, I mean, all these amazing people, what would they say about working with you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, yeah. man. You'd have to ask them. Yeah. What, are, I, I, what are they going to say well, so, about Holt? No, He's no. amazing. <laughs> Holt, oh my yeah. God. Well, what well, an incredible Will accident. they talk about what your work ethic? Will they talk about how much fun you are? Will they talk about the characters that you play? What is it that you think? You know, I think it depends who you ask. All right. <laughs> Awesome, man. All right, man. We've been taking a lot of time. I got a couple random questions. How about this? Ready? This is something that I do. Pick a number between 17 and 59. 38. 38. Any reason for 38? Because uh, I played football in Nebraska when I was a kid before I ran away from home, went to California. Uh And um, (laughs) for some reason, they put me at nose guard. I was number 38. And I was kind That's of a small. Nose guard. That's a running nose, number. Thirty-eight. Yeah. Is that a running number? Yeah, no, I was like number a, thirty-eight. Yeah, I was on the right, line. Sorry, yeah. And um, the one thing that I was good at as nose guard was I could shoot the gap, mm. right? So you know, as soon as the um, uh, quarterback snapped the ball, I would pick a side. I would try to shoot, and I would try to see if I could. Uh, you know, sometimes you get burned that way, yeah. you know, because the running back. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, that's why I'm number thirty-eight. Interesting. All right, wait. That just reminded me before we roll into these. How'd you get into boxing? You know, my little brother uh, was a Golden Gloves champion boxer, so I would box with him when I was a kid, and I always loved it. You know, boxing is uh, a really exciting sport. You learn so much about yourself. I always loved the the writing of Ernest Hemingway. Uh He always talked about grace under pressure. Uh Well, if you can remain calm and collected when a man is coming forward and throwing punches at your head and not panic and just do the things that you were trained to do, it builds character. It gives you confidence. So, yeah, I love that sport. God, I just, before we kicked off tonight, I did the heavy bag. I just did five rounds, and I was gassed. <laughs> you know, just like, Yeah, I've been doing a lot of boxing lately, oh, you know, God. and um, I like to spar more and work the mitts more than I like to just bang on the bag. But, um, you know, my wind is really coming back. You know, I was away from it for a long time because I was in Pittsburgh shooting Mindhunter. And when you're doing, you know, 15-hour days and six-day weeks, there just isn't a lot of time to get to the boxing gym. So I've been going every day. Have you asked uh, David maybe to start shooting in France? <laughs> you know, no, I think we're moving the show to L.A. Oh, in, really? in season three. I don't know if I'm allowed to announce that or not, but yeah. You know, look, why, why does we, it matter? Why not L.A. or uh, Georgia? Is where Atlanta is kind of like the hot spot for filming. It's where the majority of filming is done these days. You know... I don't know what really caused them to make that decision. It's a producer's decision. Yeah. And I'm an actor for hire on the project. So I know that um, one of the stories that we cover in season two is the Atlanta child murders, mm-hmm. right? Which were these horrific series of murders where young black children were being killed in Atlanta in the early 1980s. I know we needed a lot of extras for these marches that we would shoot. And we were having trouble finding the extras that we needed in Pittsburgh, which we could have gotten with one phone call in Los Angeles. I think that's part, you know, but I got to say that the people in Pittsburgh were very warm and very, they really rolled out the red carpet for us and it's a great town and they're big sports fans. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, great restaurants, a beautiful city. We had a good experience in Pittsburgh, but we were there for two years. And so now I think we're moving the show to well. Cool. So number 38, what does a perfect day look like for you? Oh, you know what, buddy? It really depends if I'm working or if I'm not working. You know what I mean? When I'm off, I like to get to the gym. You know, use it or lose it. I'm in my 50s now, and I feel like it's more important than ever. I really get work hard in the gym, and, and uh, so I've been in there a lot. I live in New York City. I love the Broadway theater. I go frequently. I love going to films. I like going to great restaurants, you know, so the perfect day, it could include any of those things. Yeah, awesome. Last question before I let you go. Number between one and 14. Seven. 
Do you have any nervous habits? Yes, I do this thing sometimes where I laugh, but I don't really laugh. I just kind of go, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I do this kind of humming sound. Uh-huh. Like, is it Beavis or Butthead that goes on? Oh, it's one of them. I was never yeah, yeah. I accused Beavis and Butthead yeah. watcher, but I, I know that I one of them, Beavis know. or Butthead. Yeah. Yeah. So I do this kind yeah. of Butthead thing. Does it come yeah. from anything? you have any ideas? Is it something you, you know, always done? I've or? done it since I was a little boy. It's just kind of a nervous <laughs> thing. When I find something funny, yeah. but not so funny that I'm going to laugh out loud, I do this thing. Mm, <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Wow. Any questions for me before I let you go? No, man? brother. It was such a good time. Dude, this yeah, is great, I, man. I enjoyed yeah, a lot. Yeah. Man. Thank you right. very much. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast. If you or someone you know is looking for a career change, building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to NetworkWise.com to gain access to a plethora of resources to help you build your networking skills and community. Those who are ambitious will network. The ones who succeed will network wise.